This episode will detail issues relating to the death of an infant, and will discuss issues surrounding infanticide, which some listeners might find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This special episode of Classic City Crime starts right now. Last week, here on Classic City Crime, we once again returned to the case of infant Jonathan Foundling, found murdered in the O'House dormitory in 1996. You heard from baby Jonathan's uncle, who detailed for us the range of emotions he felt when it was learned that his sister, Catherine Grant, who died by suicide in 2004, was the mother of that baby boy, and that the University of Georgia police contend she is ultimately responsible for the child's murder over 27 years ago. In a statement to the media about the case being cleared and closed, the University of Georgia Police Chief Daniel Silk said the following, quote, I am appreciative of the dedication of all the personnel involved in this effort both those who work at the UGA Police Department and our partners such as the scientists at Othram Inc. However, while I recognize the significance of closing this case, I have to simultaneously acknowledge the heartbreaking nature of the tragedy that took place. I think it's absolutely vital not to lose sight of that. I was a patrol officer in Athens when this occurred in 1996. I am keenly aware of the attention the case generated over the years, and I have been moved by the outpouring of concern and care from the UGA community and beyond. Our ability to close the case represents an important development and was facilitated by the combined efforts of two generations of police officers and detectives, those who responded directly after the initial event and investigated it then and the follow-up efforts of detectives in the intervening decades, and especially over the last two years. In the end, the technology that was needed to solve the case did not exist in 1996, but there is no doubt that the exhaustive groundwork performed by the original investigative team was vital to bringing about this conclusion." End quote. And for this episode, we're going to return to that original investigative team that Chief Silk mentions in that statement. Former Police Chief Chuck Horton and former Assistant Police Chief Connie Sampson are here to discuss with you what it was like for them to learn of the baby boy's mother being identified, therefore bringing the case to a close. In parts one and two of the Jonathan Foundling series, which you can find online, by the way, at ClassicCityCrime.com slash Jonathan Foundling, you learned that these investigators poured their hearts into this case. From giving the baby boy a name and serving as pallbearers at a funeral for the child, to interviewing north of 800 individuals in connection with the case back in 1996, they truly are the epitome of what it means to never give up. You know, when I found out the case had been solved, the first call I made was to Chuck Horton. 
He was the first person that I thought of when I saw the news. And, you know, I'm never going to forget our first interview where Chuck, who has spent, by the way, a lifetime in law enforcement and public service, had to pause repeatedly, overcome with emotion for a child who had at that time not received justice. And as you can imagine, my conversation with him after the case was closed just last week brought all of those emotions back to the surface again. You know, it's uh, a long haul, I suppose. And, you know, as I've told people, you know, as much as I'm glad that we've got some resolution, there's still a lot of things nobody's ever going to know. Well, the first thing I want to ask you is, um, you know, how long have you been aware, if you can say, um, that that perhaps some movement was happening on the case in the modern day? I know uh, things have changed a lot since we last talked. I knew that there was some movement because of the uh, the new technology with DNA. Got so I, I knew it. There, there was you know, attempts with that. So what was it like when you got the call or were informed in whatever way that the mother had been identified in this case? I, I'll be honest with you. Uh, it's, um, it kind of took the wind out. I just, all of a sudden it's in some ways resolved. Boom. You know, I just, I don't know, a lot of air out, you know, just about man, is that for real or what? You know, it just happened and it just catches you. Catches you off guard. What was it like to, uh, Chuck, to find out, you know, not only had she been identified, but that she was no longer here? That never surprised me. I told Jimmy Williamson years ago, years ago, and talking with even, in, and I may still have been chief, you know, I, I always believed the case would be solved. I always had that thought that it would be solved in some way. I didn't, I had no knowledge of the new technology that would, you know, come on the scene. And, but I thought somebody may have, or she may have confided in to somebody and they would, maybe they couldn't take it anymore or the mother passed away in some manner and they now were not obliged to keep that oath, not to tell, you know. So I always thought that something was going to happen. I just would hope that, you know, I'd be alive to, to hear it. And, uh, but I always thought something would break. And, you know, in reading some of the reporting that's happened about it, and of course the report from the open records request at UGA, they say that, you know, they really couldn't find any record of Catherine Grant of being interviewed. And I'm assuming that that was because she probably got away from, um, you know, the scenes of the crime. Not that I know that, but um, any thought on the fact that, you know, I know you conducted hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of interviews, um, but perhaps missed her maybe. Yeah, I can't, I can't say why, because uh, I, I, I don't have the report or anything like that. And it's uh, having to go back so many years. But what I would say, though, is nobody, to my knowledge, nobody brought her to 
her name to us. Uh, so that whole issue about the pregnancy, you know, you know, okay. My question is, how did folks over there not know she was pregnant? And and with saying that, I'm not saying anybody hid the fact that she was pregnant. I do believe after this case, and I think you and I talked about this, that I found out that it's not as difficult to hide a pregnancy Mm -hmm. as I once thought. Now, it may not be, you know, women, they're all different, so it's possible it was easier for her to hide the pregnancy. Um, Because I don't believe the family knew she she was pregnant, right? And so, if the family didn't know, and you know, and I think she was home before January during that time, you know, maybe around the holidays. I think that's what I was told. She apparently the family didn't realize it. So she was able to, I think, do a good job of hiding it. I don't know what she looked like. I don't know what her build or anything like that. And I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going <laughs> to say this, that, or other. Sure. But, but I do know that dormitory had semi-private bathrooms. So I think it is possible, depending on who the roommate was, that they never saw each other in a way that where they would have seen it. I mean, it's the whole thing has been bizarre uh, from the get go. Uh, you know, and there may be some people from back in the day that come forward when they hear all this and say, maybe they've got some information they want to tell the police for, but I don't know. You know, it's interesting you say that. That was going to be my next question. There could be perhaps people out there that now she has been identified can look back and say, well, maybe I do remember something now that I think about it, you know? Um, just just kind of like the young man that they interviewed that was her, uh, who she had been, you know, having sexual relations with, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's... That is highly possible. I mean, if the if the father didn't have any clue, and I, I don't think their relationship went on very long, but he didn't know. Apparently, she never came to him, you know, from what I understand. But there was never, you know, any discussion about it, so... You know, the, again, it, the whole thing's been bizarre. I mean, not just that, but the, the the big part of it was the violence. I remember you saying that last time. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, What? why did she have to inflict that kind of violence on that child? That is very rare, very rare, very rare. Any kind of expert that we talked to said that it that doesn't happen. It's it's left in the trash can. It but still breathing. Uh, in in some 
maybe in a wooded area, maybe it was suffocation or it was they were left to the elements, uh, possibly drowning, but not not what we had. I mean, it was that. I mean, really and truthfully, I, I don't know that I could. You'd have to see it. And so that, I, you know, I don't know. You know, for me, not just the murder, but why would she think she has to do that much violence? And so I, the only thing I can think of, Cameron, is over time. She, at some point, she realized what she did. You know, I don't know what she was going through or anything like that, but at some point, she realized what she did and how bad it was. And she couldn't live with herself. So she, and, and this is a person that never got any help. You know, I don't understand why. You know, I don't want to get into people's religious beliefs or anything like that on the abortion issue. Why would you carry the baby for nine months when you had legal abortion available to you in a legal time period, but you carry it to murder it when it was viable? Hmm. That I, I don't I just don't understand. You know, and some people may say, well, either way, it's murder. Well, okay, okay, but the, the state law at the time allowed somebody to get an abortion during time a certain time period. You know, I just don't know. I certainly can't answer it. It sounds like, I think you made this point even on the news the other night, that the the who is answered, but the why questions are still pretty outstanding when you think about it. Yeah, I don't know that anybody can answer that. You know, this is the way it was. I mean, it looks like to me she had some issues where she couldn't or didn't go to try to get some help. And this, you know, where she could have ended the pregnancy, but she didn't. And and if it was such a bad deal being pregnant, why in God's name do that to that child? I, I just don't can't imagine what was going through her mind as the pregnancy was getting close to an end how did how did she come up with this is the way out and then apparently at some point in time and she was tormented you know this is what i did i can't run from it i did this to that child and maybe, maybe too, she was also, she knew what the original story was that came out in the newspapers and the, the TV news. And maybe, you know, other, you know, things that you did over time or somebody else like you is bringing the story back. And, and people are not forgetting what happened. Because like I've said, you know, there's, I've seen some ugly things and there's people who have seen a lot more ugly things than me. But, you know, you, when it's an infant child and as soon as he comes into the world, he's gone. 
by the one person that should have protected him. Gosh, it's heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah, and 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 that that's the part of the story that's even stranger is what was going through her mind to do that. Why didn't she seek some help? And, the, and one thing I told the, the young lady from the uh, CBS News, I said, maybe and hopefully the death of this child will be a beacon of light for people who are hurting. Please go get some help. Don't do this. I mean, my gosh, we, we got one. We buried a baby. Okay. Let him stand for something because he, you know, he, he can't hit any home runs. He'll never be able to do that. He'll never be able to, to play football in Sanford Stadium or any other kind of place. He won't be a NASA astronaut. Uh, he, he, he lost all those opportunities, those chances of growing up. And so at least if somebody's listening to your show or they, they read the, the articles and stuff, if you've got some problems, if you're having problems, please seek somebody who will help you. You don't have to, to, to do this. And then there's Assistant Police Chief Connie Sampson. And you'll recall that she is the one who gave the infant baby boy the name Jonathan all those years ago. Why? Well, because she believed he deserved that. And it was this case that drove her back then to the baby aisles at local department stores, just taking a moment to look at blankets to help her through the sadness of investigating such a senseless tragedy. Here's our conversation. Miss Connie, were you aware up until last week that such progress was being made on this case that I know has been on your heart for quite some time? Yeah, no, I really was not aware of everything they were doing. I think I sort of heard through the grapevine they were still working on it, still had hopes, but I had not heard any of the details. And how did you become aware that the mother of the child that you gave a name to all those years ago um, had been identified? I can't imagine what that moment was like for you. Tell listeners about that. Yeah, well, it was it was I I saw it in the headlines just like you did uh, and read the entire story, uh, the entire article. And I had certainly mixed emotions uh, with her. In her life, she had to have been tormented all those years. And from what I understand, I don't know a whole lot about her life after that, but evidently committed suicide, what, 10 plus years after after the baby died. What does it mean to you? You know, I know that you and Chuck and many others, countless others through the years, spent hours upon hours interviewing hundreds of people, you know, going through every avenue you could possibly think of. What... Does it mean to you that this chapter is finally coming to a close? You know, it seems like the older I get, the harder I have processing these kinds of tragedies. When I was going through them and actually working them, I would just go through them and like it was a job and kept the emotional part away from it. But there have been some some 
certainly emotions uh, associated with finding out uh, what happened all those years ago. Now, for the record, I did not do a lot of the investigative work. Sure, I, sure. Seems like I worked there, and shortly after that, after the incident, I took uh, the chief's job at Georgia State University in Atlanta. So I didn't do a lot of the investigative work. I did some of the initial work uh, when the incident first occurred. But, you know, you see all of these and read uh, how technology and DNA and and the familiar DNA, that kind of thing, how they help solve the crimes. And uh, it was just really just amazing the intricate steps the investigators went through and also the scientific intricacies involved. But they certainly came to uh, an absolute final conclusion. Absolutely. I was going to say, you know, some of the investigative techniques like genealogical DNA, familial DNA, those kind of things just really didn't exist back then um, at all. No. And what we always know about any crime scene, whatever it is, whatever it is or whatever the crime scene is, whether it's a crimes against persons or, or, or property crime, we do know that if we do not get the evidence there initially, then our chances of solving the, the case uh, uh, is almost non-existent. And so uh, evidently the um, evidence was there and preserved from the very beginning of the investigation. And what is it? Tell me how many years, 27, 27 years, years yes. 27 years later, the case was solved, yeah. I want to thank both Connie and Chuck for being willing to follow up with me and with all of you on this case. You know, I am never going to forget their commitment to baby Jonathan. And I hope it serves as a reminder to all of us that, yes, there are good police out there and that they do deserve our gratitude because these cases keep them up at night, too. But as we wrap up this final update, I wanted to again return to the psychology of the case. We've heard from Tracy, the brother of the now-identified mother in the case, and having learned from him a little more about Catherine, and having learned more about the investigation over the past 27 years, I found the perfect person to try and help us make sense of all of this. Please welcome Dr. Janet Frick. My name is Dr. Janet Frick. I am a psychology professor at the University of Georgia. I have taught at UGA since the fall of 1997. So I've been here a little over 25 years. I have taught undergraduates and graduate students. I am a developmental psychologist with expertise in early infant development. Well, as you know, the community quite shocked last week when the news about Jonathan Foundling's case being closed and Catherine Grant being uh, named, rather, the mother. You work on campus. Can you tell us a little bit about what the reaction in your circles was like and what your own reaction was when you saw the news? 
Sure. Uh, this this story, of course, is is such a heartbreaking story, and it is there is a sense of relief that we have closure about the case, but that closure still brings a sense of sadness because we know that you know not only was the infant's life tragically taken under, uh, you know, certainly. Um, you know, tragic, terrible circumstances. But we also know that uh, the woman who gave birth to him in that uh, bathroom in the dorm, that she uh, obviously was um, not in a great state of mind at that time. And, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about what was going on that day, but certainly nothing about this uh, has a happy ending at all. So I'm grateful for the closure on behalf of all of the people who have wondered about this case and on the on behalf of Catherine's family, but it is still, uh, there's still a great sense of tragedy about the whole, all, well, the entire set of circumstances. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, we know the who in this case, but many people are out there racking their brains trying to understand that three-letter word that's so hard in many of these cases to figure out, and that might be the why, right? Um, Exactly. What do you think could have possibly been going through her mind, or what do we see typically in cases like this, um, and how can you speak to that as it relates to your experience? Sure. I can speak to this both from my uh, expertise in psychology, but also from what I know about uh, having taught uh, undergraduates at UGA for 25 years. And, and there's, there's a number of factors that I think are important to keep in mind regarding this. One is that, you know, despite the fact that we now have legal closure on this case, we still don't know exactly what took place in that bathroom or if Catherine was the only person there. That is likely the case, but we don't have absolute proof of that. So that's one thing that I think is just important to keep in mind in terms of contextualizing all of this. Um, But assuming that it is the case that she was the only one in that bathroom that day, that uh, that these actions were her choice that took place in that moment, um, I think it is still, there still remains a distinct possibility that she was uh, undergoing a some level of extreme psychological distress at the time of birth. Um, there are known conditions that can occur. We know quite a bit about both prenatal depression as well as postpartum depression. And, you know, while of course I have no way of, of saying definitively that this, that this is an explanation for uh, what may have been going on, there are in some circumstances extreme examples of uh, postpartum depression leading women who have just given birth or who have recently given birth to uh, engage in really unexpected actions. Um, There's a a rare condition known as postpartum psychosis that has been associated with women who have taken the life of their newborns or their young infants. And of course, you know, these cases are always tragic, but um, uh, giving birth is a very disruptive act to the human body. There are, you know, surging hormones and all sorts of physical things going on. And, um, you know, somebody who 
to maybe dealing with mental health issues, uh, you can't always predict who may be uh, at risk of postpartum depression or a more extreme instance of that. So I just think it's important to, you know, to keep in mind that that is within the realm of possibility of something that could have been going on for Catherine. Some people are going to have empathy, and we're seeing that after the interview with Tracy, where he detailed the actual loving and accepting relationship that both he and his sister had with their parents. Um, So that empathy certainly exists out there. There are still going to be those people out there who say the, well, she could have, right? She could have gotten an abortion, Mm -hmm. or she could have given this baby up to another loving family. Um, You can detail for us how difficult even those two options would have been for someone back then, but also can still be for people today. Yes, for sure. One thing that I also think in terms of the things that we don't know, we don't know when Catherine found out that she was pregnant. Um, There are many documented cases of people who are weeks or months into a pregnancy before they know for sure that they are pregnant. Uh, This can occur with people who have irregular cycles, people who just are not, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, maybe someone is on birth control and that birth control failed and it just never has occurred to them that they might not have been protected at that time. So um, again, we don't know if, you know, at what point she was aware of her pregnancy. There are, as crazy as it sounds, there are documented cases of people giving birth who did not know before that point that they were in labor. Um, and, you know, I, as someone who has given birth twice, I don't comprehend that, but it's it happens enough that that we know that it's a, a real thing. It so, happens enough. There's um, a TV show about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and and so you know, given what we know that Catherine's grades in the fall semester were slipping, I mean that may be because she was worried about an upcoming birth, but it also could be because she was lonely. She was isolated. She, uh, you know, had been dating someone who now she's not seeing as much. We don't know what could have been behind that. So, um, but let's assume she knew she was pregnant at some point. Um, although, of course, there were at the time legal options for terminating a pregnancy, um, those were not as accessible as you might st- you might think. First of all, um, even at that time, there was a time limitation. You could not get an elective abortion past a certain number of weeks of pregnancy. And secondly, abortion is not covered generally by health insurance. It's going to be expensive. It's going to cost several hundred dollars out of pocket, which she may or may not have had. And there has never been abortion access in Athens, even uh, during the time when we had the most uh, generous policies in the state of Georgia, which you know certainly is not the case today. But even at that time, you had to go into Atlanta. So there, again, there were a number of obstacles in place that would have made termination a, a, a choice that may not have been on the table for her at that time. In terms of why not give the baby up for adoption, again, I think a lot is going to depend on did she know she was pregnant? Was she maybe in denial about it? Was she um, perhaps, you know, in terms of mental health, not really facing the reality of that? Um, Giving a child up for adoption 
is a, a difficult decision under the best of circumstances. And you generally would want to see somebody who has a, a big network of support to help them reach that decision. And from all indications that we have, you know, Catherine was keeping this pregnancy to herself. She did not seem to have a support network that she was relying on at that time, even though it sounds like there would have been support there if she had reached out for it. But again, we can't know why she chose not to. I wanted to ask you something that came out in the interview with her brother, um, where it where he talked about the fact that his mother, looking back, did recall an instance after January of 1996, where Catherine had come home and indicated to her mother that something bad had happened in her dorm as it related to an infant, uh-huh. but did not say, I am the person responsible for that. Right, what does right. that mean, maybe, from a psychological mm. perspective? Is that a, you know, gauging a reaction, or is that trying to, you know, in some way speak about what happened? What anything on that? Yeah, that's a really good observation. And I, I detect, I noted the same thing. I think it may have been sort of one of two possibilities come to mind. One is that, you know, like you said, it could have been a, like, let me just sort of talk about this and see what sort of reaction I get to this. It is also possible, as as hard as it is to understand this from a rational perspective, that if she had some sort of psychotic break around the time of the murder, um, she may have been able to convince herself that she is not the one who did that. Um, the, 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 she, she may have been able to separate that action from herself to such an extent that she didn't even see it as something that she had done. Now, again, I am not a clinician who ever evaluated her. So that is a purely speculative, you know, presumption based on the thought that she may have had some major mental health crisis around the time of giving birth. Uh, but, but those things can happen. That, that is, uh, a potential possibility that that we have to you know keep on the table as something that could be a partial explanation. We also know here, you know, as, as we've all said, there are no winners here, and I certainly think that you know with Catherine's um, death by suicide in two thousand and four, that you know perhaps that three letter question of why went the answer to that went with her as well but mm-hmm. what does mm-hmm. it tell you you know tracy pointed to the fact that you know his sister dying by suicide really to him spoke to the fact that she had persecuted and prosecuted herself in her own mm-hmm. mind perhaps for years after that what happened in that basement bathroom um what does that you know the suicidality aspect of this case indicate if anything yeah, I think there, there's a couple of things that I think about in regards to this. One is the fact that police were not able to solve the crime at the time means that there was not there were not people in the dorm who are like, oh, yeah, Catherine was pregnant. And, you know, what's up with that? She must have given birth. She hid her pregnancy 
uh, from people in the dorm. I don't know if she had a roommate. I presume she did, but she, you know, w- apparently went to great lengths to hide her pregnancy from others so much that, you know, she didn't have any friends or roommates who knew that she was pregnant. So that, you know, suggests that she, you know, either was in denial herself or was really good at hiding this. Um, the fact that she did, by all appearances, she had a successful professional life. She obviously had friends who cared about her, who spoke very lovingly and kindly about her, talked about you know, her, her compassion, her care for animals, etc. She was a person who seemed to have healthy relationships, um, but yet she was keeping secrets from them. None of them knew about this, you know, her family who loved and supported her, they didn't know. Um, I think it is, you know, again, we won't ever know for sure, but there is the possibility that this was something that she kept inside her to such a great extent, and it was eating at her in various ways that that could have just become too much of a burden to carry, and she didn't feel that it was something that she could share with others, which is extremely sad. But the last question I have for you is, you know, we've talked about abortion access and how important that can be in preventing something like this Mm -hmm. from ever happening again. And one thing that's so important to me in covering these cases, even as tragic as they may be, is to look for the lessons for all of us all these years Mm -hmm. later and Mm -hmm. to also perhaps maybe even touch or help someone out there who might be struggling um, with something similar, right? What are some other steps that we can take, in your Mm -hmm. opinion, to prevent something so tragic like this from ever happening again? Yeah, it's so uh, easy and heartbreaking in times of where we do have, you know, the benefit of 2020 hindsight to think, oh, if only I had done this or if only I had done that. And I just want to, first of all, speak with compassion to Catherine's family and all of her loved ones to say that in many cases of people who end their own lives, um, they're isn't anything that others could have done necessarily that would have prevented them. So prevented that. So I, I just want to uh, provide that you know, professional perspective, I guess, that, that we do know enough from research on suicidality that there's not a, um, a magic, if only, button in all circumstances. Uh, in general, I would say the more that we as a society can provide support for people experiencing unexpected or unplanned pregnancies, the better. Um, At the time of Catherine's pregnancy, there was, you know, and there there really still is a great deal of stigma around uh, unplanned pregnancies, uh, unmarried pregnancies. That, of course, is going to differ from in different cultural contexts. But, uh, you know, support for Uh, You know, not only for what are things you can do if you do find yourself uh, pregnant and, and, you know, not having planned for it, but also I think resources and, you know, a healthier sex education and culture around sexuality so that, uh, you know, normal young adult sexual relationships are ones that still involve good communication, mutual respect, and, uh, you know, a plan for 
how to prevent an unwanted pregnancy if that is, um, you know, something that uh, is is not what the partners are wanting. So, um, you know, we uh, we know from what was said in the interview in the in the previous episode that uh, they were having unprotected sex. We don't know if Catherine was on birth control, but um, the you know having having a culture of planning ahead to prevent pregnancy and talking more open about sexuality may be helpful for um, having uh, fewer of these types of situations in the future. Um, But in general, I think just greater support for mental health, for how to, you know, to deal with suicidal feelings and what, and building up support networks for people who are feeling hopeless places that they can turn to. And a reminder, 988, that suicide hotline number that is now established. What a needed service for all of us. Dr. Janet Frick, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank Dr. Frick and everyone who's taken time to participate in these follow-up episodes. Again, you can receive all four of them at ClassicCityCrime.com slash Jonathan Foundling. You now know a little bit more about how this case was finally resolved after over 27 years. You know more about Catherine Grant and her life, but also, yes, her tragic death. And you've heard some possibilities about what might have gone terribly wrong in that basement bathroom. And it is my hope that each and every one of you and all of those affected by this tragedy might soon begin to heal. You know, we often talk about justice on this podcast. And for many people, justice is viewed as a very black and white thing. Many of us might view justice as an arrest, a prosecution, conviction, and sentencing of an offender, but as I've learned through doing this work, the word justice has many different meanings to so many people. For the Bakers, justice was labeled as, quote, knowing the truth about what happened to my daughter. For Kelsey, who lost her parents in the same year we saw Jonathan Foundling killed, justice was something she did not even believe in. So I took a moment to ask both Chuck Horton and Connie Sampson the same question. Has justice really been served for baby Jonathan Foundling? In a case like this, it's just, it's a tragedy. And again, she was tormented. Uh, no kind of punishment that the criminal justice system could have inflicted on her would have been worse than what she went through. (laughs) And so, in my opinion, justice, I think justice was (laughs) overserved. I I got to believe that she was going through hell on earth. I have to believe her whole whatever she was thinking, how she was thinking, uh, to do that, to spend so much time and energy hiding the pregnancy, and when she could have had a way out of it, but did that, and then one day you woke up. 
and you're looking in the mirror and you realize now you're admitting what you did and she couldn't she couldn't live with it so she was she she did it she took her own life but she was going through hell on earth and you know her soul was tormented and perhaps justice in this case could be the fact that Jonathan Foundling has been reunited with a family who never knew him. Here were the words of his uncle, Tracy Grant, in last week's episode. Jonathan Foundling is Jonathan Grant. Um, he is a part of our family and we accept him into our hearts. and. Um, had we known in the past, I mean, just as we would have had we known about the pregnancy, uh, we would have welcomed him into our lives. And To the Grant family, my prayers are with you. I cannot begin to fathom what it has been like for you all to process this story. To the University of Georgia Police Department, the gratitude of this community for your persistence in speaking the truth cannot be overstated enough. And to that little baby boy, Jonathan, who would now be 27 years old, perhaps a doctor, a scientist, a teacher, most certainly a member of this community, I hope that wherever you are, you'll know that this community will never, ever forget you. You know, it is often in times of sadness and grief that I return to the faith upon which has served as my foundation for my entire life. And I have found solace in just a few verses that I'm going to end with. And the first one is this. Judge not lest ye be judged. A verse for each of us to keep in mind as we make social media posts, remembering that an innocent family is reading and watching. Luke 8:17 says, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be made known and brought to light. And perhaps the greatest solace for us all today, Jeremiah 29:11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And while baby Jonathan might have certainly encountered darkness as he entered this world, may we all today find peace in knowing that he is with the one who is so much greater than any of us, and what a future that must be. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay kind. I'm Cameron Jay.